We're getting there close to the end of our series. But tonight I want us to do something a little bit different. The series has been looking at Old Testament passages, stories that point forward in time to the New Testament and particularly to New Testament truths, truths about the Christian life. How do we live this Christian life? But I uh, sensed this week that it was maybe a good thing for us to slow down a little bit. Uh, we've been hearing a lot of information week after week after week, and I've noticed that over the last three weeks there's really been an emphasis on practical holiness, a call to a holy life. And so I want us to think a little bit about that tonight, particularly. It'll be a little bit different. I'm not going to try to go to the Old Testament and paint a picture and and go to the New Testament. It'll be a little bit different. It'll be a little bit more topical. You may have noticed a difference in your handout that there are no blanks, no fill in the blanks. I'm sorry about that. Uh, But my kids that supper tonight said, good, we'll have a break tonight uh, from filling in all those blanks. So... uh, I trust the Lord has something for us tonight. So pray with me as we go to the Word of God, as we think about this big topic of holiness, living a holy life. And let's ask the Lord to to meet us and speak to us. Let's pray. Father, again we acknowledge our great, great need of You. And we're desperate that, Lord, You would speak to us. that you would enable us to set our mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth, so that we might truly put to death those things, those sins that are displeasing to you. So enable us to do that. Meet us, we pray, as only you can do. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Christians, we cooperate with God in two great pursuits. You have that's your first point there, bullet point. Two great pursuits. That is, God himself is committed to these two great pursuits, and he wants us to cooperate with him in these two grand pursuits. Now, in one sense, you could say there's only one great pursuit, the glory of God. Absolutely. Uh, that's, the, that's the number one, the glory of God. But you could say we glorify God Basically, you could say in two big ways. What are they? And I would say the first is this. The first is the pursuit of personal holiness. The pursuit of personal holiness, Hebrews 12, 14, reads, Pursue peace with all men and the holiness or sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That's a pursuit of every Christian. Would you agree with me? Personal holiness. But the second is the pursuit of the Great Commission, right? Jesus, before ascending to heaven, left us this pursuit. Go into all the world and and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them, right, to observe all that I commanded. And lo, I am with you. And so, in other words, we could say we are to pursue holiness, not just in ourselves, but we are also to pursue holiness in others. Does that make sense? These two grand pursuits. Note that the first is an inward activity. It's something that's being done within us. And the other one is something that's being done through us, out, outside of us, to others, right? These two great activities. And so when we are told in the Word of God, in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. At a minimum, it means these two things. The pursuit of practical personal holiness and the pursuit of the Great Commission. If you want to be in the will of God, 
If you want your life to be aligned with the purposes of God, pursue practical holiness and pursue the Great Commission. You can't go wrong on those two pursuits. You with me? Now, what is the relationship between these two pursuits? Uh, These pursuits are not at odds with each other. In fact, I would say that the first makes possible the second. Personal holiness makes possible great commission. Does that make sense? Um, Effective ministry towards others depends in a large part on a vibrant and growing personal relationship with God. God wants to do a work within us before He does a work through us. That's His basic order in the Christian life. To pursue evangelism and discipleship in others without pursuing personal holiness is dangerous. It's dangerous because it can lead you to hypocrisy. It can lead to personal deception. And so there's a danger there. Now, here's a big point I want to make. If we are right in saying that the pursuit of holiness comes first and makes possible the Great Commission, then it follows, we have to come to the conclusion that personal holiness is the great priority of the Christian life. You understand what I just said there? If the first pursuit makes possible the second pursuit, then we're saying the first pursuit is the great priority of the Christian life, the pursuit of personal holiness. Robert Murray McShane was a godly pastor in the early 1800s. In fact, he only lived to age 29, lived 29 years. But the impact he had on his church and the people around us was extraordinary. And down through the ages, Christians who have read his works. It says that in 29 years, he did far more than most people do in 70, 80 years of life. But he writes this, he writes, he wrote this, he wrote, the greatest need of my people, he's talking about the people in his congregation, the greatest need of my people is my personal holiness. Think about what he's saying there. The greatest need of everyone around me is my personal holiness. And I would say the greatest need of the world today is a holy church. It's a point that I've been trying to emphasize at the beginning of our sessions The greatest need of the world today is a holy church made up of holy Christians, holy individuals, right? We are the salt of the earth, Jesus says, but if the salt becomes tasteless, it's good for nothing. Now, it's a pretty startling point he makes there. It is good for nothing. And if we Christians are not living a holy life, in terms of our witness to this world, we are really good for nothing. And that's what Jesus is communicating right there. I served for three years. My wife and I both served for three years on search and rescue in the the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. It was a really neat experience. It was a volunteer search and rescue group. And the Rocky Mountains are mountains that must be respected. They're a little bit different than, for instance, Paris Mountain that's behind us. Uh, They're on a totally different level. People die every year in the Rocky Mountains. We were just serving in one little area of the Colorado Rockies. And in three summers there, I did four body recoveries. Um, That's the kind of thing you dealt with uh, regularly. Um, But there were also rescue. Uh, Rescue, you know, people who were in bad situation, got hurt, injured, and you'd have to go out there and and get them out of there. Now, one of the things that we were taught in search and rescue, and I thought at first, this sounded a little bit selfish, especially after coming to EI for a couple years, was that the very first thing you should take care of is yourself. Take care of yourself before you take care of your patient, your subject. 
Why? Because if you become hyperthermic, if you become, if you get into trouble, if you become dehydrated, you'll be of no help to the person you're trying to rescue. Does that make sense? Uh, you, you'll become a hindrance rather than a help. Right? You, you yourself will become a liability rather than an asset. And there's something like this going on in the spiritual realm. That we are no help to anyone around us if we are ourselves caught in sin. Does that make sense? Like there's, we become a liability rather than a help. You know, it's what you're told when you go on airplanes, you know, uh, if the, in case of an emergency, put the mask on yourself before you put the mask on anyone else, right? You remember hearing that? It's the same idea. And what am I trying to say here? It's what Murray McShane is saying. The greatest need of everyone around us is our own personal holiness. Well, what is holiness? You see, you keep using this word. What does this word mean? What does it mean? Well, holiness means to be set apart. Well, there it is. You've heard that before. It means to be set apart. When God chose us and saved us, He set us apart. He made us holy. We call that positional holiness. In fact, if you read uh, the very first few verses of the book of Corinthians, he calls the people there to the saints, to the holy ones who are in Corinth. And you keep reading the book, you're like, whew, these people are far from holy. But he calls them holy. That's positional holiness. Okay? But what we're talking about tonight is experiential holiness, practical holiness. It is becoming what we already are in our actual lives. That's what we're wanting to think about tonight. Practical, personal holiness. And the whole Bible calls us to this pursuit, right? This grand pursuit of personal holiness. First Peter. I'm going to be quoting lots of verses, but I just want you to hear them. Um, I'm not wanting to turn here and there. Okay, so this is a little bit more topical. I want you to hear these passages. First Peter 1, 15. Like the Holy One who called you, you also be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy. Right? Why? For I am holy, says God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. And that's the pursuit of practical holiness. So you could say, in a sense, then, that holiness is being like God. You with me? Holiness is being like God. It's not being like God, though, in every way, because the pursuit of holiness is not the pursuit of immutability. <laughs> you know, never changing. It's not the, the pursuit of omniscience, knowing everything. It's not the pursuit of omnipotence, being all-powerful. Right? It's not the pursuit of omnipresence being everywhere but it is being like god you could say morally jerry bridges defines holiness this way to be holy is to be morally blameless morally blameless but even as i say that i don't like that word morally ah why why do i not like that word morally when it has to do with holiness because holiness to me is, as I read scripture, is more than simply doing the right thing. It's more than just a matter of right and wrong. It's bigger than that. I want to borrow a little bit from J.C. Ryle. If I was going to recommend two books on this topic of holiness, and I'm taking a little bit of an aside here, I would recommend either Jerry Bridges', Jerry Bridges The Pursuit of Holiness or J.C. Ryle's Holiness. Those are two wonderful books, classics of the Christian faith. But I want to borrow from J.C. Rao. He gives a description of holiness. It's hard to define it, but he describes it. Holiness is being of one mind with God, hating what He hates, loving what He loves, 
A holy person will seek to turn from every known sin. A holy person will seek to crucify his flesh with its affections and desires. A holy person will hate all that is impure and he will delight in all that is pure and righteous and good and lovely. He will fear God. He will live soberly. He will walk humbly with God. He will delight in God's word and rejoice in the truth. He will put his trust in God again and again and again put his trust in God, praying without ceasing. He'll be characterized by the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, etc. A holy person is a faithful person in all of his responsibilities and all of the relationships God calls him to. A holy person is a servant. A holy person is merciful, is loving. That's a tall order, isn't it? That's a big portrait. But maybe we can simplify it. Holiness is Christ-likeness. Holiness is Christ-likeness. It is being like Christ in our actions, in our attitudes, in our words, in our ambitions, in all of our conduct. It's being like Christ. Now just to be clear, none of us will ever perfectly arrive at this standard of holiness in this lifetime. I just want to be clear about that. We are called to pursue that grand objective. We will never arrive at that grand objective. The holy person, though, is a person who is always making progress to that end. Always making progress. I love this quote by Martin Luther. Um, I had the quote, Murray Machine. Here's a quote by Martin Luther. The life, therefore, this life of holiness is not righteousness, he says, but growth in righteousness. Not health, but healing, not being but becoming, not rest but exercise. We are not yet what we shall be, but we are growing towards it. The process is not yet finished, but it is going on. This is not the end, it is the road. All does not yet gleam in glory, but all is being purified. A wonderful call, a call to make progress in the Christian life. Well, why do I bring all this up? Because over the last three weeks, there's been this call to holiness. A call, but more specifically, a call to remove everything that hinders holiness. So if you remember three weeks ago, we looked at the passage in 1 Corinthians 5, where it says, clean out the old leaven. Remember that? You know, we're laughing about the leaven and the lump of dough, right? But clean out the old leaven. Why? Because that's not who you are. It's inconsistent with your new nature. You are unleavened bread. Therefore, live it out. Why? Because Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed for us and we are living in the days of unleavened bread. Live that way. Clean out the old leaven. Two weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians 10. And the dominant idea there or command was flee idolatry. Flee idolatry. Why? We noted it was because our fleeing idolatry is the evidence that we have truly come to know Jesus Christ. The evidence that we know Christ isn't that we go to church, that we've been baptized, that we enjoy, you know, a good sermon. The evidence is that we're leading a holy life, that we are fleeing idolatry. And then last week, we read in 1 Peter, abstain from fleshly lusts. It's aliens and strangers, right? This is our identity in this world. Abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Why? Well, because there's a world out there that needs our witness. 
And the only way that we will attract that world to Jesus Christ is by living a holy life. Do you see the, the, the pattern in the last three weeks? And, and that's why I wanted to slow down. And, and this, this is more us thinking together about practical holiness and how to go about that. Now we hear these exhortations. And so we're here in, in my outline here. I'm here in the obstacle, the great obstacle to holiness. What is the great obstacle to holiness? Sin, right? And this is the thing we're trying to remove, flee from, abstain from. We hear these exhortations, and my concern is that perhaps we're coming away with the question, but how? You know, I know what I'm supposed to do, and I know why I'm supposed to do it, but how do I do it? How do I clean out the old leaven? How do I flee idolatry? How do we abstain from fleshly lusts? Well, it's easier said than done. You agree with me? It's easier said than done. I can tell you, tell you're blue in the face, you can tell me, abstain. But it's hard to do. Why is it so hard to do? Why do we struggle with dealing with sin? And I'll just say this, and this is what I, the reason I believe it's so hard. It's because sin is rooted in desire. Sin gets its strength from desire. James tells us in the first chapter that sin begins when we are carried away and enticed by what? Our own lusts, our own sinful desires. And when this lust conceives, then it gives birth to sin. This is where sin comes from. It begins with desire. And that word lust there in that verse is important because it speaks of a strong desire for what is forbidden. Why do we sin? It's simple. We sin because we want to sin. I hate to say it, but that's why. We sin because we want to sin. There is an inclination, an internal desire for something that God forbids. If I didn't want to sin, it wouldn't be that hard to say no to temptation, would it? I don't like broccoli. I don't know what you don't like, but I don't like broccoli. It makes me feel sick inside. Try tempting me with broccoli. It ain't going to work. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's just not going to work. You know, sin wouldn't be temptation. There would be no temptation if there was no desire. But the strength of temptation is desire. Right, it's in that desire. Now, to be clear, when we receive a new life in the Lord Jesus, when we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus and we're regenerated, we're, we have new spiritual life in the Lord Jesus Christ, we become a new person. I want to acknowledge that. And God comes in and He puts whole new desires within us. He transforms our life. And He puts within us a desire to please Him and to glorify Him and to walk in holiness. That's a wonderful thing. But, but, God does not completely remove our sin nature. We're told this. This is the New Testament. He does not remove that sin nature. He breaks the power of sin over us so that we can actually say no to sin, but he does not remove all of our sin nature, or as Paul puts it, our flesh. That's what Paul means when he speaks about our flesh. And this flesh that still lies within us, us who have put our trust in Christ, this sinful nature is always lusting, always desiring, always wanting what God forbids. But it's true. And it's there. Now, if we're going to obey, 
if we're going to live a holy life, we're going if we're going to experience some measure of victory over sins, our desires are going to have to change. Right? If you're going to have victory over sin, the change has to happen at the level of desires. How do you change your desires? Now I realize that God can come and change your desires in an instant by a supernatural act of power. And you maybe heard of those stories, you know, someone who's been a slave to alcohol or a slave to nicotine or you know addicted to something, and they come to Christ, and the moment they come to Christ, it's gone. They're free. There's you know, no more desire, and they never touch it again in their life. You heard those testimonies? I've heard those testimonies. But God doesn't do that with all of our sin, does He? He doesn't. Even with that person, He doesn't do that with all of their sin. You wish He would, right? (laughs) Don't you wish He would? Take it all away. Remove all the desire. A holy life would be a lot easier. But if we're going to live a holy life, God by His Spirit is going to have to come in and He's going to have to change our desires, our longings. And we're going to have to cooperate with His Spirit in the changing of those desires. You might put it this way, he's going to have to come in and give us godly desires that in some sense overpower our sinful desires, that are greater than those sinful desires. But God wants our participation. We know this, right? Hopefully most of this is simply review. I'm just trying to build a broad theology of sanctification here. Sanctification... The pursuit of holiness involves us, right? It's not all God. God doesn't just come in and sweep over and change all the desires. We don't just sit back and go, God, just change me. But we, we are actively involved and cooperate in the pursuit of personal holiness. And so what I'm going to do for the rest of our time tonight is I want to focus more on the part we play. Yes, God is there. We must depend on Him and cry out to Him throughout this process. But I want to focus on one aspect that we have a part to play in. I realize this is a huge topic. How do we say no to sin? (laughs) How do we pursue personal holiness? How do we go about this? It's a huge topic. I could go in so many directions at this point. But the Lord's been putting something on my heart that I want to communicate to you. It's a fairly simple point. And yet it's a hard one to put into practice. But it's, it's one that we can actually do. We can practically do this. And I think it's key to putting sin to death. It's key to cleaning out the old leaven and abstaining from fleshly lusts. All right, so what is this method of transformation? Here's the basic strategy. And it's just in two short phrases. Set your mind, put to death. This is, this is a big thing I want you to take away tonight. Set your mind, put to death. There's a strategy in the New Testament, a strategy, I think, in the whole Word of God that communicates these two points. If we're going to flee idolatry, you see, we're going to have to hate idolatry. If we're going to abstain from fleshly lust, we're going to have to hate fleshly lust, and we're going to have to desire holiness and purity and righteousness. Our desires are going to have to change. But here's the problem. We can't change, directly change our desires. Try it. Try to change what you want. You can't change what you want. Let's say that you love ice cream. Who loves ice cream here? I mean, ice cream's a good one, right? Let's say you love ice cream. And I come along and I say, you've got to stop eating ice cream. Abstain from ice cream. 
well, you might do it for my sake, you know, because, you know, you, you want to please me or so forth. But as soon as I leave, like, the desire hasn't changed. And if the ice cream's in the freezer, wow, the temptation will be great, right? To pull that ice cream out and get yourself a bowl of ice cream. But the command doesn't necessarily change the desire. But what if I take on a different strategy with you? What if I come to you day after day after day after day, week after week, and I don't come to you saying, abstain from fleshly lusts or abstain from ice cream. Sorry, ice cream is the topic here. Abstain from ice cream. But I come to you with all kinds of information on how bad ice cream is for you and how it will eventually ruin your life. And I come to you with charts and diagrams and, and I tell you how bad ice cream is for you and how wonderful life without ice cream is for you. And I brainwash you. I brainwash you, you know. And to... Th- thinking this way well the next time you're going you know down through public's aisle and you're, you're in the ice cream aisle and you see that cookies and cream on the shelf or the rocky road or whatever your favorite ice cream you might be tempted again pulling that up but now there's a different there's something else at work here not just a command but information right that has been working on you on your mind and your heart and you might go yeah but that's not good for me and might put it back do you see the difference between the two? The command versus the information that is changing your mind? What am I trying to communicate? I'm trying to communicate this, that although we can't directly change our desires, we can choose what will dominate our mind. And what dominates our mind will affect our desires. And our desires will affect what we do. Here it is. What you think affects what you want. What you want affects what you do. What you think affects what you want. What you want affects what you do. How are we going to go about abstaining from fleshly lust, fleeing idolatry, cleaning out the old leaven? The strategy, God's strategy that I'm trying to communicate here, we haven't gone to Scripture to see it yet, but we're getting there, is this. Set your mind, put to death. And if you find yourself having a hard time putting sin to death, you need to go back and set your mind because this mind has not been set correctly. If you find yourselves powerless to clean out sin, abstain from fleshly lusts, or worse, if you find yourself without any desire to put sin to death, any desire for holiness... And this is a massive check engine light on the, that's flashing on your dashboard. It's saying, you need to go back and set your mind on things above. Okay, God's aims. This is what I'm trying to say. God aims at the renewing of our mind in order to renew our actions. Transformation, how does it take place? By the renewing of the mind. And this is why the Word of God highlights the the important truth of God's Word and meditating upon the Word of God. This is why we saw a few weeks ago in Deuteronomy 8, man doesn't live by what? Bread alone, right? But what? By every word that proceeds of the mouth of God. Like, you need the Word of God. You need to heed the Word of God. You need to set your mind on the things of the Word of God. Why did Adam and Eve fail in chapter 3 of Genesis? Because they did not set their mind on the things of God the Word of God, and they failed to put to death 
the sin they were being tempted with. John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And particularly in that context here in John 8, freedom there is freedom from sin. How will you be free? You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus prays, sanctify them by your word. Your, your truth, your word is truth. You see the pattern there? Holy, make them holy. How? By the truth. The truth. All right, so I want to go here to a few passages, and I'm going to put them up on the screen. And again, my goal tonight is not so much to do an in-depth exegesis of these passages, but I want you to see this pattern right here. Set your mind, put to death. I want you to see that pattern in these passages. I want to make a few comments, and then I want to just make some application. The first one is in Colossians 3, and I've color-coded it, so the put your mind is blue, the put to death, the set your mind is blue, put to death is red. Okay, so that sounded, red seemed good for put to death. You know, it's kind of this warning, you know, just get your attention color. Okay, Colossians 3, 1 through 5. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. See it there. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. And then what follows that? You're to set your mind, but what follows? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Take action. Action flows from thinking. Right? Think, renew your mind, take action, put to death sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Do you see the pattern there? Everybody seen the pattern? Set your mind. It's a little bit more of a study here, Bible study, but set your mind, put to death. Okay, let's turn to, and I could say, what does it mean to set your mind on things above? You know, you could ask yourself that. But I think it's pretty clear what he's talking about here. It's talking about setting your mind on, ultimately, the Word of God. I mean, this is the only place you can go to where there is truth from God, truth that comes down from above. Does it make sense? That you can read this, and it's God's Word. And it is in contrast here to things that are upon the earth. Okay, next passage, Ephesians 4, 21, 25. You don't see it as clearly here, but it is there. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. That is, what have we been taught by Jesus? What is the truth that is in Jesus? Here's the truth that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. These are the the ideas, the thoughts, the truth that you are to put into your mind. And then flowing out of that then is action, putting to death, therefore putting away lying. Here it's very specific, right? Lying. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And he goes on, right? Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. You see, right? Uh, and he goes on with all these sins that we are to put to death. You see the pattern there? Set the mind, put to death. Okay, the next one, Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How are, how are we to be transformed? By the renewing of your mind. 
so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. In the sense here, Paul is actually reversing the order, but he's not, he's not, he's, he's only reversing the order in which he puts it in, not the, or, the actual order. Because he's saying here, put to death, right? Be conformed. Don't be conformed. Sorry. Be transformed. Put to death. How? By setting your mind. You see, you see the pattern there? Set your mind. Put to death. And this is telling something. God has made us in such a way that we are to live out what we believe. We always live out what we believe. And if we are living something out that seems contrary to what we say we believe, we have to go back and say, what do we really believe? What are we believing here? What is controlling our mind, our heart? What is dominating our thinking? I think this informs all of Paul's strategy in his letters. His letters begin with theology. You've noted that, right? And they move on to practice. Set your mind, theology, usually the first few chapters, put to death, the last few chapters of his epistles. Set your mind, put to death. But I want to go to one more place, and this is in Romans 8. I wanted to save the best for last. Romans 8. This is a longer passage, but I want you to see here because it's so powerful what Paul does here. He writes, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh. But what, what could the law not do? It couldn't, uh, weak as it was through the flesh. It couldn't, couldn't get us to live a holy life. Why? Because our flesh was weak, right? God did. God steps in. And Christ comes, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. It's very important there. It's likeness. Jesus lived a holy life, a righteous life. And as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. That's important there. Where did He condemn sin in the flesh? Where is it? Where did, he, where did, where did that happen? On the cross, right? On the cross. Why did Jesus go to a cross? Well, yes, for forgiveness, to, to, to purchase forgiveness and so forth, but here's a purpose that's really important. Why did Jesus go to a cross? So that the right, the requirements of the law, or some, some versions say the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That's important. Why did Jesus go to a cross? So that we might live a holy life. We might actually follow the law. We might actually obey. We might pursue personal holiness. But how does that happen? How do we, how do the requirements of the law, how are they fulfilled in us? They're fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. How are we going to live a holy life? By the Spirit. You're with me? This is, this is Paul's reasoning. But know where he goes next, because I want you to see this, where he goes next. How do you, How do you walk by the Spirit? How do you live in accordance with the Spirit? He says, For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who walk according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Do you see it there? How are you going to walk by the Spirit? You're going to have to set your mind on the things of the Spirit. And if, you, if, if, if we are setting our minds on the things of this world, if the things of this world are dominating us, we are not going to be walking in the Spirit. And we're not going to be able to put sin to death when we need to put sin to death. 
And he keeps going. For the mindset on the flesh is death. But the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it is not subject, it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. You see this contrast between the mindset on the flesh and the mindset on the spirit. Where does Paul go after this? And I'm going to jump here to verse 13. He says, for if you are living according to the flesh, you will die. You must die. But here he says, but if by the Spirit, and when he says by the Spirit, he's kind of hooking all those verses back there, you know, to setting your mind on the Spirit. If you walk by the Spirit, by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Set the minds, put to death. This is a great pattern in the Word of God. And why do I bring this up? I realize I'm I'm speaking at a a, a big level here, but uh, why why do I bring all this up? Why am I concerned? I'm, I'm I'm concerned because we live in a day where our minds are being assaulted like they never were before. Now maybe they always were, but it seems like more and more our minds are assaulted by this world, by information. We have access to endless information, endless entertainment, endless streams, you know, of endless world, you know, flesh coming at us. We're bombarded and encouraged from every direction to set our minds on the things of the flesh, the news, the media, the billboards, the magazines, the social media, the Netflix. I'm thinking especially though of of all that is internet related, everything that's in your pocket. You know what I mean? There's a lot there. And it wants to it wants to hold us captive. And not captive to the things of the spirit or the things above, but the things of this world, the things of the flesh. YouTube, internet, radio, you know, you you name it. And some of it may be relatively benign. I mean it may seem somewhat harmless. It may not be like blatantly sinful. But still, subtly it's communicating to us philosophies and thinking and ambitions and values and fears and a whole mindset and a whole spirit. Does it, does it make sense? It's, 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 it's serious. I think we have to you know, be aware of that. And increasingly, I believe that if we're going to live a godly life, a holy life, we as Christians are going to have to make a determined an intentional choice to turn that off. To turn it off. It's going to be hard. To limit the influence of all of that out there upon our minds. There's no other way. You might say, well, I I read my Bible every day. Well, that's wonderful. (laughs) That's wonderful. You read your Bible every day. That's wonderful. But what are we talking about tonight? We're talking about what is it that dominates our thinking. That's what we're thinking. That's what we're asking ourselves tonight. And you know just as well as I do, I can read my Bible every day and yet the Bible not dominate my thinking. Does it make sense? I can read my Bible and I can be thinking about a thousand other things. So what we're talking about here is this conscious, intentional setting of the mind upon things above. And how... How do we know we need to do this? Well, we always need to do this. <laughs> you just just give it, just just believe it. You got to do this. 
But you know you really got to do it if you find yourself powerless in the fight against sin. And if you find yourself that you can't put things to death, then you got to go back and start setting your mind. And if that means shutting yourself in a room for 10 hours a day in the Word of God, you got to do it. I'm not telling you what it means or what it doesn't mean. But you got to take action and set your mind and hold it captive to the Word of God. So what are we talking about here? We're not just talking about truth running through our mind. We're saying the truth has to capture our imagination. What we're talking about here is more than just an intellectual exercise. The truth has to capture our heart. It has to rule our heart. It has to dwell in our heart. The mind has to become captive to the Word of God, the beauty of Jesus Christ, the wonder of grace and forgiveness, the holiness of God, the danger of sin, and on we could go. And this can't happen without time. Time and the Word of God. It won't happen without study. It won't happen without thinking deeply about the things of God. It won't take place without meditating upon the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God. And it won't happen without saying no to other things. So that's the question tonight. This is what I've been burdened with this week, is what is it that dominates our thinking, our mind? Proverbs 23, 7, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We are what we think. What are we thinking? Luke 6.45 The good man out of the good treasures of his heart brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of the evil treasures brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. What is filling our heart tonight? That's a big question. Huh? What is What is coming out of our heart? What is it that's coming out of our heart? Brothers and sisters, are we allowing our mind to be dominated by the things of the flesh? And if so, let us not be surprised if when we try to clean out the old leaven and flee idolatry and immorality and abstain from fleshly lusts, we find ourselves powerless. We find ourselves unable to do it. And we need to go back. The biblical order is this. Set your mind put to death set your mind put to death in the back of your sheet of paper I have application I have some questions there the students I'm going to require that you students work your way through those questions for your assignment this week and I'm not asking you to hand that in I want it to be personal I want you to reflect I want you to think about what we were we've been talking about tonight and I want you to simply just let Rachel know that you've done it by the, the given time. But I would encourage all of us to take some time and to think through some of these questions. You may have other questions that come up in your mind. And you can see there are some of these questions there. What is it? What specific sins or sin is the Spirit of God convicting you of, calling you to repent of? I'm not asking you to make something up or to go back to some past sin that you've already dealt with. That's not my intention. But the Lord has had us thinking about holiness over the last three, four weeks now. And I believe He has a purpose in that. And I want to believe that the Spirit of God is speaking. 
And, and, and although I've been speaking in generalities, the Spirit of God will, will speak always in particularities. He's going to be specific. It's going to be very specific. Specific sin in your life. Write it down. It's helpful to write these things down. What am I struggling with? What am I dealing with? What am I finding myself powerless against? And then go down and ask yourself this question, what particular truth about God and yourself and salvation are you failing to believe when you commit this particular sin? Another way to put it is what lies, what lies am I believing when I commit this particular sin? Because the reality is that behind every sin is a lie. Behind every sin is a lie. Behind every sin is a truth that is being denied. What are those truths? What are those lies? Get them on paper. It's helpful to put them on paper, to see them for what they are. And then that final question, what are you going to do about it? This has to be practical, right? It has to touch our actual lives. What are we going to do? How are we going to go about setting our mind on the things of the Spirit, on things that are above? And I want you to really think in practical terms. You know, I'm going to close down my social my, my um, social account. What are you calling? Social media. Thank you. Social media. I'm going to close that down, or, or you know, whatever it be. You know, that, what is it that's hindering you from doing this? And you got to take measures. Take those measures. It might be putting a limit on the amount of TV you watch or getting rid of it altogether, the web surfing you do, whatever it is, right, that's strangling us from setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. And I want to include here, it should all include a continual and constant cry to God, a cry of dependence to God, that He might enable us in this great pursuit of holiness. He might enable us to do this, to set our minds on things that are above. So, again, to quote Robert Murray McShane, the greatest need, and to paraphrase him, the greatest need of everyone around you, and believe me, this is true, the greatest need of everyone around you is your personal holiness, my personal holiness. How are you going to go about that? Well, tonight we just looked at one way. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. That's one way you can pursue personal holiness. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how practical it is. And we ask that you would enable us now to do it. Not just to be hearers, but to be doers lest we deceive ourselves. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.